You're listening to 17 Karat K-Pop. For more information about the variety of topics covered on the show, as well as my other podcast, How to Stand, visit 17karatkpop.weebly.com. And if you enjoy this episode, please consider becoming a monthly donor to support my work and allow it to continue to go on and be free for all to access for as low as 99 cents a month. Visit the Support the Show link on my site's homepage for more information. Hello everybody, and welcome back to 17 Care K-Pop. On today's episode of Stay Tuned, where I talk about tech, music, and the entertainment industry as a whole, there are three big categories of stories to address. Let's start with topic one. As live music and concerts come back to being in-person events, so come new liability clauses with them. Hosts of festivals and concerts are drafting or have already quietly released official liability clauses, protecting them from getting sued if you get COVID at their event. This may seem like a pretty straightforward thing to do, a non-story really, but this is the ultimate test of the true scope of the definition of force majeure which is basically a legal term for when no party can be liable for what happened. So let's say you go to a music festival, and while you're there, there's a freak accident and a fire rips through, or a tornado or something, and you get injured at the event. They could cite force majeure, and you wouldn't be able to sue them. They would say, no, 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 this counts as an unforeseeable event. We had no idea that natural disaster was going to strike. Can it still count as an unforeseen event if it lasts a full year? Because we can kind of see the future if you go to a show before herd immunity is reached around the world, really. There is a chance, no matter how small, of catching COVID there. So does it still count as unforeseen? And if it doesn't, then can you sue a venue if you catch COVID at their show? Maybe when just recapping the story to friends and family... You can say, I got COVID at that event. But to say that in court, you need to have physical proof to back that up. You can't just say, I can reasonably infer I got it there because that was the big crowded event. Of course I got it there. The court needs to see actual proof of that. And if you're in a place like the USA, where contact tracing is so rare and disorganized and patchwork, the lack of contact tracing and the like makes proving that you got COVID specifically at their event nearly impossible. So due to that burden of proof and how they could argue force majeure, bottom line is go to these events at your own risk and don't expect the venues to be on your side if you get COVID at the show. So instead of risking it, you could just continue to enjoy virtual concert events. Which brings me to my next topic, the CGI world merging with our world more than ever Listen to Stay Tuned Episode 4 to hear my quick rundown of what NFTs are. I won't go through that whole thing again. But I will just remind you that NFTs are these tokens that allow people to basically buy things at an auction, but it's all digital. So you don't get a single, you never get a physical copy of what you bought. All you basically own is a certificate proving that you were the sole owner of that item. You get basically a code. So you basically have a receipt that no one can take away from you and you can't return. Michaela, a famous computer-generated, very lifelike Instagram influencer, 
who I've talked about a lot on the show before, as well as in my research, which is a report on my website, has started releasing NFTs of her own, which are basically works of art with her made to look like Venus. Brud, the company who made Michaela, had this really interesting revealing Instagram caption really showing that they are really doing the most when it comes to giving Michaela a backstory. Quote, The mythology of Venus is one of the first transmedium stories ever told. An otherworldly being who walked among humans and was faced with doing things her way or their way. Her life in conflicts founded a religion, it instigated war, inspired countless art, and still provokes questions of sexuality and femininity in a modern society. Brud's Venus series explores the deity's birth and life, as interpreted through Michaela, whose own allegorical narrative could have the power to create new mythologies, shape or challenge opinions and values for generations to come. She was rebirthed, and now we found her. Stay tuned as we release more chapters of this special edition limited release, inspired by an icon for the ages, and explored by the first icon of the metaverse, Michaela, unquote. So Michaela, this CGI character, is being portrayed as influential and groundbreaking, timeless when it comes to her inspiration as Venus, the goddess. And she's been having these, as of recording time, three so far, NFT drops, where fans follow her on Twitter, reply to her NFT tweets, and if they're one of the lucky people randomly selected, they get to win and buy a digital piece of art that makes Michaela look like a goddess. There's a related story here about the metaverse as a whole and how the CGI characters fit into that world. Again, which I did a huge deep dive report on, published at Virtual Humans website, I did a deep dive on these computer-generated lifelike social media stars, and they seem to be used more and more as a part of these trends like NFTs, which feels like a really pivotal moment in culture to stop and think about how it felt like it was only a matter of time that these literally unreal CGI influencers were going to engage in this trendy, digital-only marketplace. And Christopher Travers, full disclosure, I'm a little biased because he did help publish my research, so keep that in mind, but I think he had a really interesting, noteworthy take on this trend, saying, quote, Social networks such as Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok need to shift their attention to 3D optimized experiences in a bid to stay relevant following the ongoing tradition, else they risk shelving themselves as the 2D social networks of the past. Today's most popular social networks are on track to become an afterthought rather than the destination, unquote. And he cites the fact that Epic Games just announced they are putting one billion with a B dollars into the metaverse, and they want to release what they call a metahumans creator. Sony actually just contributed $200 million to Epic Games' funding pool, so companies that you may think are rivals or even teaming up for the shared goal of blurring the lines between digital and physical realms. And are they doing that because they do feel like they need to team up and survive and stay relevant? It's an interesting proposition. Two things about this. One is that I do see Epic Games being publicly traded someday. 
It's currently valued at $28.7 billion, and imagine what it would be valued at if its investment in the metaverse pays off. So give it a few years, it might go public. That's my prediction there. And then my second comment here is that I don't know if I agree that Instagram and Twitter and the like will become obsolete if they don't try to step up their game CGI-wise, virtual reality-wise too. Certain apps like that have just become so common in our daily lives, in our daily social media usage, that we don't really expect as much from them. Tech gurus and startup founders and whatnot really like to talk about how we humans always want the next big thing and they want to do get something that's better and more improved and more high-tech again and again and again and it keeps upping the game. But I don't know if just the general public outside of that tech world thinks that way necessarily as much as they think we do. I think we're pretty good with the level of technology certain apps give us right now. They're just such a normal part of our lives that I feel like things like Instagram and Twitter will just be fine for people to treat them like text messages. They'll still do them, they'll still use them without needing new features added or any changes to them. I don't know if they'll become obsolete because I think at this point they're just so ingrained in our in our culture, in our habits. Upending that may not be as easy and possible even as they might think. There is something to be said for this inevitable merging more and more of virtual and physical things. A point we will get back to in a second, but first I want to amend my initial comments and opinion on NFTs. In Stay Tuned Episode 4, I did speak very positively about NFTs because what personally really was persuasive to me was thinking about how with getting rid of a middleman like Amazon, artists can make a ton more money off of their music, plus they also get like mere pennies for streams of their songs. So to auction off music as an NFT to the highest bidder just really helps artists, especially independent artists, financially. And so that's what made me very sympathetic to the use of NFTs. The more I think about it, the more the downsides seem to be too much. Because first of all, NFT sales take up so much electricity and energy. I think people would assume that whenever you digitize something, you actually make it more eco-friendly. But you're still not really being eco-friendly because the server that holds this NFT code is being powered using up so much energy. Then there's the fact that it's just so risky and unstable. Its appeal could also be its downfall, because think about it. Let's say I buy an NFT, I buy one of Michaela's pictures, and they say, congrats, you're the sole owner of this, no one can have a copy of it, that certificate, that minted item I bought, I don't really have because it's in the digital space, and the server holding my code is destroyed. My code is gone. My official certificate proving my ownership of the NFT is gone. There's no receipt. There's no physical proof I can bring up to say, hey, can I get a refund? It's just a lost cause. With servers using up all that energy and being unstable with no backup plan, really, I personally don't want to get involved in this world of blockchain usage and the like. Cryptocurrency to me is just too risky in that sense. NFTs have been used in some incredibly positive and meaningful ways too. For example, the National Independent Venue Association has had a couple attempts now and even in just the first attempt to hold an NFT fundraiser, raised 
over $200,000 for independent music venues. So it is helping out musicians in various ways. It's also a way that artists have been making money off of things frivolous and substantive from Jack Dorsey's first tweet, screenshots of text with Army Hammer, to a fire Festival tweet, to, to the Leave Britney Alone video. That one sold as an NFT for $44,000, by the way. So it can be used for things that seem silly or something as life-saving in a way as funding music venues. But personally, what I think is that it's not the solution, but it's a solution. So I think this trend is worth looking at and not just dismissing outright, but it's not the end-all be-all. I don't think the future is in cryptocurrency entirely. I do think it's a bit overhyped how much people are thinking this is the next big thing, but it could be a new route to make money. So I'm just positively thinking about the conversations they've started, because instead of questioning artists who or anyone really who wants to sell work as an NFT, I would want to spend time questioning why they feel the need to sell their work as an NFT in the first place. It shows there is this fundamentally broken structural issue in the entertainment industry if some creators are getting such crumbs that they feel like they need to turn to an auction to make enough money. So my take is basically that this NFT world is not necessarily good or bad, but good in terms of the conversations that should start about the world of creators and discussing how much their work is valued, how much should it be worth for their work, and how to change that formula. What I do agree with the people at Brud about is I do see the future post-pandemic of being a lot more accepting of and normalizing the use of virtual reality and not viewing that merging of worlds as so much of a weird, quirky interest. But for everything from education, remote learning, to video games, I do see people getting more and more into virtual reality as just part of their hobbies, part of their interests, and it's not going to be this anomaly to be into that world of technology. Some more interesting insights lately on this alternate digital world being created, the metaverse, came from this interview I will link to on my weekly newsletter with Jensen Huang, the CEO of a semiconductor company called NVIDIA. By the way, just a side note that's interesting, the current stock price for NVIDIA is $6.45 a share, which is huge. Anyway, he believes that creating the metaverse is creating, quote, a virtual world that is a digital twin of ours, unquote. He believes that someday it'll be super normal to just, step one, try out your idea as a blueprint in the digital world, and then step two, try implementing what worked in the simulation in the real world. And for example, his company teamed up with BMW to try digital simulation of how they could change the workflow, the structure of work in a factory. Then after looking through that, then they could implement the changes needed to a, a physical location in Germany. He argues ironically that he's not trying to reinvent the wheel here. He's just trying to use AI to accelerate how efficient people can be. Because instead of these costly, time-consuming trial and error periods in the physical world, we can just test them out quickly in the digital world real quick, 
If it works out, move forward with the plan in the physical world. If not, keep tweaking it before you invest more in the real world. In this way, it kind of makes sense that he refers to AI as the modern Big Bang. And he says, quote, In the future, the digital world or the virtual world will be thousands of times bigger than the physical world. There will be a new New York City. There will be a new Shanghai. Every single factory and every single building will have a digital twin that will simulate and track the physical version of it, always, unquote. So he views not only there being digital twins of our world essentially out there, but digital twins that are ten times bigger. He views our universe as expanding due to AI and the like. Another interesting quote, the condition is extremely rare that a market is simultaneously large and technologically demanding. It is usually the case that the markets that require really powerful computers are very small in size. The markets are so small it can't afford very large investments. That's why you don't see a company that was founded to do climate research. Video games was one of the best strategic decisions we ever made." Unquote. He's basically saying there's an inverse relationship. The bigger and broader your company thinks and produces stuff, the less specific and detailed your technology can be and your application of AI can be. The size of your actual production, the scope of your production, will be inversely related to the technology you use. Which is an interesting point to bring up about if you think about all of these problems we, could, we should probably be able to fix by now as humans with this advanced technology. Like why aren't we using technology more to combat the climate crisis? This may be why, because the production facilities that could help with that are not advanced enough technologically because they just have their hands in too many pots at once. And the companies with the size to do that and make that kind of monumental change do not have the specificity in their technology to be the most helpful. And he views artificial intelligence as doing what humans could never do. We can't write codes as complex as AI. We can't implement certain functions as complex as AI. We can't futurize ourselves, I probably just made up a word there, but whatever, as fast as AI. It is just going to be viewed as superior to humans someday, and he views it as something that can start processes and make life easier. Not replacing human activity, but kickstarting it a few steps. Ultimately, he sees a future where artificial intelligence and humans are not competing against each other, but working hand in hand, having different but essential roles all around in a production process. Number three, quote, you're going to be able to go in and out of the two worlds through wormholes. We'll go into the virtual world using virtual reality, and the objects in the virtual world will come into the physical world using augmented reality. So what's going to happen is pieces of the digital world will be temporarily or even semi-permanently augmenting our physical world. It's ultimately about the fusion of the virtual world and the physical world." Unquote. Last quote I want to bring attention to. He was asked about the ethical implications of this. The way that can manipulate humans and be used as a weapon against enemies, whether it's actual enemies in your life or institutional enemies, whoever you have it out for, this could fall into the wrong hands. But his response is, quote, in order to enable all society, which is vastly good, and to put great technology in their hands so that they could use the same technology and ideally superior technology to stay safe, unquote. He said the best way to democratize this 
is to give access to everyone. And society is mostly good, and you will have people use it wrongly, but then maybe it can be outdone by the majority, which will be people using it for good reasons. Very optimistic view of humanity that I wish I believed in more, but that's how he sees humans as using it, more so for good than bad. And that's what matters here, he says. A different way to interpret his quote here that is more persuasive to me personally to support this statement and this theme about the merging of these worlds are concepts like freedom of speech debates. I think there are so many exceptions and a lot of nuance here, but just with those caveats in mind, what I often think is free speech is about not censoring, but getting every idea out into the open as much as possible. There are certain very dangerous, harmful ones that, that's a whole other story. But for the most part, free speech is about just that. It's about getting all the ideas out there, then letting the people decide what ideas they agree with. If you think you are intellectually better than someone else, then let's hear it and decide for ourselves. So maybe the same principle could apply here, where this technology is okay if it is just accessible to everyone, and we just watch what everyone does with it, if it's being used for good more than bad if this was a worthwhile decision to invest in this world. Now, I'm looking at this from a philosophical standpoint more than a, a substantive one about what would happen if we did this. So I'm not saying just give everyone this massive amount of technology to use, but more philosophically, I'm just trying to think about how the ethics of this could play out, how you could argue in defense of the ethical implications of people getting access to this sort of thing. Just something to think about. The last topic I want to cover today involves... Overall, current media consumption in America. First of all, Pew Research's 2021 data so far indicates that 81% of adults in the United States now use YouTube. Second of all, in 2019, Amazon spent $7.8 billion on video and music content. In 2020, that went from $7.8 billion to $11 billion during a pandemic year, which actually makes more sense. In addition to this increased desire for tons of video content on YouTube or other social media and just movies, streaming services, so many ways that your attention is being vied for by these various sources of entertainment, that also translates to recent success in the audio world. Edison Research has conducted their annual Infinite Dial study, as they call it, and their latest takeaways for podcast listening. I will link to the full study if you want to really dive deep into it on my weekly newsletter, but my key takeaways and the study's key takeaways. One, podcast listeners have become a more diverse group of people. Two, Americans are overall just more familiar with podcasts. Three, Monthly podcast listeners went from 37 to 41% of Americans this past year. And weekly podcast listeners who listen to podcasts at least once a week rose from 24 to 28% of Americans. So not the majority of Americans are into podcasts yet. It may sound like everyone has or listens to a podcast. That's not necessarily true right now, but they are increasing by significant percentages when it comes to both knowledge about them and people listening to them. I will stipulate that Edison research here is looking at Americans over the age of 12. So they might have excluded some listeners. I'm not sure how many super kid-friendly podcasts geared towards kids are out there, but just a caveat worth noting, 
but all to say that Americans are really increasingly interested in finding out more about and exploring this new world of audio entertainment, in addition to an increased continued interest in visual forms of entertainment. You've probably heard by now about this app called Clubhouse, as well as all of its copycats like Twitter Spaces and Facebook's trying to do their own thing with this. Even LinkedIn wants to get in on this, which I don't think will go over well. I mean, when Slack suggested they would have an option where you could just suddenly direct message anyone, people really thought that crossed a line. Let's stop blurring this work life balance, and that's what this function would essentially do. So I don't think LinkedIn audio-focused conversations will go over well, but I digress. All the apps are trying to get in on this new trend of audio entertainment. They're seeing the value in podcast listening and how there is this unique sense of intimacy you get from listening to a podcast. It's like you're listening in on a conversation or you're a part of a conversation. In a year where we've all been socially isolated, it really is a comfort and makes people both entertained, it's an escape, and it makes people less lonely. Naturally, I am super biased here, but I do think it is just a really cool way to reach people. And just have I just have an appreciation for the art of podcasts and audio entertainment. So you'd think I'd be all on board this Clubhouse copycat era. I'm actually not, for a couple of reasons. One is that it seems to be playing out a bit like Discord did. As some of the most well-known and most frequently used sites like Twitter and Facebook are being bombarded with more questions than ever about their free speech policies, what crosses a line, how and who to censor, what do you do about ironic humor versus actually dangerous content, what do you do to curb misinformation, Just in general, it feels like toxicity and vitriol have been allowed to fester on some of those apps. So that's when you saw this rise in people using things like Discord, turning to these alternative apps that are a little less popular and more specialized. So you could take the parts of conversations you loved having on apps like Twitter and leave the toxic parts of the site behind you. For example, maybe you're just on Twitter for the K-pop discussion. Then you can move to Discord and just talk K-pop. However, the lesson here is that no matter what medium you choose to go to, people's worst instincts are going to come out at some point. Discord is still not really in the same league as apps like Twitter when it comes to toxic content because they do have those monitors for different chat rooms. So there is more content moderation. That can be a good thing. It's, It's a very ethically tricky area here that I won't... Dive into too much here, I'm just thinking about if this new trend in media consumption is really good or not, and where do I see the future of it headed? From that perspective, I honestly think that Clubhouse is overhyped. This audio-only stuff, like Discord, I think the rise in the use of it will come and go as it goes with all of these other apps who want to become the next Twitter or the next Facebook, etc. So one, I think... Clubhouse and other copycat apps will fizzle out as quickly as they rose in popularity is because people will see toxicity there too eventually. It's just the nature of internet culture. Two, just in general signs indicate already people are losing interest. In March, the Clubhouse app downloads dropped by 70%. When you have audio-only entertainment and it can also help facilitate conversations when you're not nervous and socially anxious about 
being seen on camera, sometimes that helps people, but it's also still tiring. It's still emotional labor to put into a conversation with strangers for the first time especially. Any conversation can be taxing, sometimes for good reason. It's just a rigorous debate. It's a really healthy discussion, interesting, fun, exciting, hyped up discussion. But no matter what, communication takes work. It takes mental work. And so I think at the end of a long day of Zoom calls, the last thing some people might want to do is keep talking. As much as, like I said, it can be a very cool sense of being included in a special conversation, some people will love it still, and it'll be like an alternative to going out and socializing. But I don't know if that's the majority of Americans. It kind of depends how extroverted or introverted Americans are and are becoming over time. Bottom line here, interesting how quickly all of these tech companies want to latch onto this trend, see it as the next big frontier to conquer, and are investing so heavily in audio entertainment. But I do wonder if they have hyped this up too much and are putting too much stock in it being the next big thing. That is where the world is headed in terms of technology, in terms of concert clauses and risks, in terms of virtual worlds, audio entertainment, etc. Thank you for listening to the latest. Stay tuned and stay tuned indeed because later this week we've got some K-pop headlines to discuss as well as I have another interview coming out soon and lots more content so stay tuned. Thank you for listening, and I will talk to you all again very soon.